0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why UnitedHealthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. It's Friday, December 16th. The longer the war in Ukraine lasts, the harder it becomes to imagine how it might end. And for those on the front lines, from volunteer fighters to civilians standing ground in annexed territories to the families grieving their loved ones, the realities are difficult to comprehend. Over the past 10 months, we have relied on courageous storytellers to make sense of what is happening and to put a human face on the statistics of suffering. Clarissa Ward is CNN's chief international correspondent, and recently she spoke at BOF Voices 2022. Over the course of her story career, she has interviewed Taliban fighters in Kabul, sat down with the Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, And on February 24th, the day Putin's troops advanced on Kyiv, she was there with her crew. For a frontline perspective on the war in Ukraine, this week on the BOF podcast, I'm honored to share this talk from Clarissa Ward at BOF Voices 2022.
2: Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for such a warm welcome. And I guess this is kind of the challenging content Portion of what promises to be an amazing few days. And I wanted to talk to you all a little bit about Ukraine. I was there when the war began and I've spent about 15 weeks there this year. So it's been a big part of my 2022. That's a story I've been covering since 2014. And I've lived in Russia twice before as well. So it's a part of the world that I have spent a lot of time in. And I think that the sort of interesting conversation to be had around Ukraine right now is really about trying to envision how this thing ends, right? Where does it go from here? What does victory look like to the different parties who are involved in this conflict? Because I think that understandably right now there's this huge sense of exuberance around the Ukrainian ability to push back the Russian military, to humiliate them, to defeat them, to force them to retreat from Kiev, from Izum, from Kherson. And that has led to this kind of natural exuberance and a feeling that maybe they can really do it. Maybe they can win this war single-handedly. They can push the Russian army completely out. And maybe while they're at it, they might destabilize the situation or the situation in Russia might become so destabilized that Vladimir Putin would end up falling. And so you can see and feel the kind of energy around that excitement that has come with this extraordinary Ukrainian response. It's really like a David and Goliath dynamic, right? On the one hand, you have the second largest military in the world on paper, and on the other hand, you have like the little engine that could, that with a huge amount of support and backing from various countries in the West has been able to deal a sort of devastating blow to the Russian military. But I just want to provide some kind of context or another side of that story because I think it's really important when we talk about war and we think about war that we don't get carried away with the kind of football game excitement analogy and we keep it rooted in an understanding of the tragedy and horror of war that often gets forgotten when you're talking geopolitics and and things seem really fascinating and fast moving and unpredictable. I just returned from Kherson Oblast, which is the area that Russia was just forced to pull back from. And I just want to give people a sense that victory in Ukraine, after the jubilation of liberation passes, actually looks very grim and very dark and very empty. So, for example, you will go into these towns and villages that have been liberated through incredible acts of bravery. You will see for the first few days people cheering in the streets, old ladies weeping as they welcome Ukrainian armed forces back into their towns. But then very quickly they're forced to contend with their new reality. And the reality is that almost every single house in these areas has been decimated, has been destroyed. I had an elderly woman come up and was clinging to me like a mollusk saying, please help me. Come and look at my house. I went and looked around her house. There was no roof. She's a 65-year-old woman. Her son is serving on the front lines. She's all alone. And she is moving her bed at night into different parts of the house trying to find somewhere with more shelter and more warmth. So it's clearly not a sustainable situation for people to live like that. Meanwhile, there are no central services yet that can be returned to these areas because they've been so badly decimated. And you have the very real trauma that people living in these areas have experienced at the hands of their Russian occupiers. So I interviewed a 56-year-old woman called Tatyana who was brutally raped by a young Russian soldier who was begging him, oh, please, I'm too old for you. You need someone younger. Please leave me alone. And he didn't listen to her. He raped her in her brother's bedroom. She was so ashamed she couldn't even tell her husband, but she did pluck up the courage after a few days to go to the Russian commander who was in charge of the unit in that town. And she told him what this young soldier had done to her. And the commander said, I'm going to deal with it. And a few days later, the commander came to see her and said, I punched the guy in the jaw for you. Would you like me to kill him? And she said, I would like to kill all of you. Which was extraordinarily brave. And again, it's so easy to get carried away with these stories of bravery. But underpinning that is the real trauma of what Tatiana has experienced. And Tatiana at this stage doesn't have any recourse to support and help for that, right? She is forced to continue, as many Ukrainians are, to best carve out whatever semblance of a life they can for themselves and for their families. Beyond that, you have a situation where a large part of the country is now either maybe no longer in a state of fighting, but under pretty consistent missile attacks And the new Russian sort of modus operandi, which is deeply cynical but also remarkably effective, is to target critical civilian infrastructure. So they're basically going after the electric grid. And the reason this is kind of... Effective is because unlike some of the bombardment that we saw in the city of Mariupol, for example, where there was a huge number of civilian casualties, where a a women's maternity hospital was hit, a theater with displaced people living there was hit, hitting critical infrastructure doesn't quite rile the international community and onlookers in quite the same way because there aren't as many civilians being killed in the process. But actually, in a funny way, there are many civilians who will be killed as a result of this, because you are now marching in to a bitterly cold Ukrainian winter with temperatures regularly plunging below zero. And the Ukrainians do not have enough power to ensure that people have electricity and most importantly, that people have heat. So they are actually asking Ukrainians who are overseas now, please don't come back to Ukraine because we can't actually handle you. And we can't repair the grid fast enough because every time we try to make those repairs, it's like a game of whack-a-mole. The next week, and when I was there for four weeks, it happened every Monday morning. So there's a psychological impact to it too. You would wake up at like five in the morning on a Monday with a pit in your stomach knowing that across the country there was going to be a huge series of attacks some of which would invariably kill civilians as well, but which would ultimately decimate the grid infrastructure for that day. I went to parts of the country where there's no running water, parts of the country where people have to use salt water to bathe and go every day and wait in a line and collect drinking water to bring home with them. All of which is to say that while there is no question that Ukraine is in a sense winning this war, it is coming at a very bitter cost, and a very deep, deep cost to the Ukrainian people. So you can understand why, when the Ukrainians are urged by people to sit down at the negotiating table and have a conversation about a negotiated settlement with the Russians, why they're not really in the mood to make concessions. But I can also tell you, after covering war, for nearly two decades, that the vast majority of conflicts only end through negotiated settlements. And so you have this kind of paralysis. Now, on the other side, you have Russia, which I think it's fair to say at this stage can't really turn this around militarily into something resembling an outright victory. But don't forget that for President Vladimir Putin, this has become an existential issue. He understands that he cannot lose because if he loses, he's done, very likely. And so the game that I believe the Russians are playing now is not necessarily an outright victory because they understand that militarily that is essentially impossible for them, but to try to grind this conflict on and on with the hopes of extending it into like a protracted stalemate. And the reason they want to do that is because they are banking on the fact that the Western backers of Ukraine and the Ukrainians themselves will ultimately have a lower pain threshold than the Russians do because the Russians have been really indoctrinating Russian people into buying into this idea. This is an extension of our mission in the Second World War. We're ridding Ukraine of the scourge of fascism and Nazism. And so we need to be willing to suffer. We need to be willing to struggle and to keep on this mission. And and that is something that historically has actually really appealed to the Russian psyche. And so while you're seeing a lot of Russians, understandably, not wanting to send their children to go and arguably probably die in Ukraine, you're not seeing Russians coming out into the streets in the way that maybe had been expected or hoped to protest the fact that the sanctions are having a really biting effect, that they can't get imports as easily anymore, that there are all sorts of constraints and changes that have been placed upon their daily lives and a certain quality of life that many Russians have become accustomed to, which is no longer available to them. So for Russia at this stage, I would argue that probably a victory looks like a sort of extended stalemate, whereby ultimately the West and Ukraine's backers feel like, how much longer can we keep this up? Which brings me to the kind of final piece of the puzzle, and it's a really important piece of the puzzle which is what does the international community, or particularly NATO, those supporting Ukraine in this war, what does victory look like to them? And this is interesting because you see that there's kind of two schools of thought here. There's one school of thought that says victory looks like an end to this war as Russia had a decisive blow dealt to it, but now there is a really good time to sit and have a discussion and really start to think about the contours of what a kind of cessation of hostilities and ultimately a negotiated settlement might look like. And we heard this recently from the U.S. chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Mark Milley, who talked about this. And then what was interesting is there was a little bit of pushback from a different part of the US administration from the White House who were saying, well, no, 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 we really need to wait for Ukraine to take the lead and say what they would like to see and when they would feel ready to sit down and under what kind of parameters they would be willing to have that conversation. But there's no question that going forward, Ukraine's international backers really need to have a very clear, cogent and coherent sense and a unified sense of what exactly they want to see or how they would like to see this end. Because there is a very big difference between going for broke and trying to essentially facilitate the ousting of Vladimir Putin, which is, I think, in some camps, the sort of preferred outcome. And then another camp, which would be a little more pragmatic and thinking... Let's give the Ukrainians what they need to defend themselves, but then also urge them to sit down at the negotiating table as soon as they possibly can. The other wild card in all of this, and not to kind of leave you on a, <laughs> on a note where you're like, "Wow, there's no answers and this all sucks and it's terrible, but that's what I'm going to do. Um, <laughs> But the other wild card in all this is even if the Ukrainians did decide, okay, we're going to sit down, we're going to talk negotiated settlement, we understand there has to be some concession. At this stage, you know, who in this room arguably would take President Vladimir Putin at his word, even if he offered an assurance that like, okay, we're going to agree this about the Donbass, we're going to agree this about Crimea, who would really believe that we wouldn't be having the same conversation in two years' time, in four years' time, in six years' time. Whenever it becomes politically expedient for Vladimir Putin, for whatever domestic reasons or possibly international reasons, usually it's more about kind of his own domestic agenda and kind of appearing as very strong on the world stage, he can sort of pull at these levers and continue to cause chaos and discontent and misery on the ground in Ukraine, but not necessarily just Ukraine. And so you have this very, like, complex set of factors, which is a big part of the reason that I think it is so difficult to kind of come up with any consensus around how we deal with bringing this conflict to an end. But I would just underscore... Having spent so much time there, having seen so many hearts broken, having met mothers who have wept over the bodies of their dead sons who have been executed for no reason except that they were walking down the wrong street at the wrong time. I do think it's really important for us to remember that we have an obligation, all of us, to do whatever we can in any capacity to help try to mitigate the suffering in Ukraine and to help try to precipitate an end to that war. And with that, I thank you for your time.
1: We'll be right back with more on the BOF podcast.
0: Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff with real hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence every inch, stitch, Visit ebay.com for terms.
1: So, Clarissa, I have a few questions for you. And, you know, I've read and heard a lot of feedback from other parts of the world, from people with a different perspective, that had NATO and the US Mm. and the European Union not encroached Mm -hmm. so much on the buffer zone that is Ukraine and kind of created this, almost a threat against this buffer area which Putin had been kind of hanging on to, could the war have been avoided?
2: So I I would just say, look, there is a sort of a view, and it's usually kind of popular with Russians in general, that this is really about Russia attempting to recalibrate the existing post-Cold War European security agreement and the balance of power, which they felt was stacked very unfairly, not in their favor, was sort of carried out in an underhanded way at a moment where Russia was on its kneecaps in the 90s and weakened and humiliated. And so they felt that allowing all the Baltic states to join NATO as well as other countries that were traditionally sort of behind the Iron Curtain was a threat to them. At the same time, so I think you can have a discussion about like whether NATO expansion in the 1990s was overly exuberant. Within the context, though, just of like where we were today and where we were sitting there in January and February. And I sat there for four weeks and I was like most people who had spent a lot of time in Russia. I was like, this war is not going to happen. And this is why I don't think that argument holds water, because... Even my Russian friends and my like pro-Putin Russian acquaintances, they were all saying this war isn't going to happen, of course the invasion isn't going to happen, it's not going to happen. If it was inevitable, if Russia had been pushed to such a point where they had no recourse but to invade Ukraine, then maybe they would have said at the time, well, you know, it's inevitable, it's going to happen. It's going to happen because, you know, the West hasn't given Russia any choice. But that's not the rhetoric that was coming out, even from Sergei Lavrov himself. So I think that that's a little bit of a feint, but I do think you could have a separate discussion about, like, NATO expansion in the 1990s and and whether that was handled as well as it could have been.
1: Okay. The other thing that's part of the dialogue around this conflict is Mr. Putin himself. And just Mm -hmm. now in your talk, you said Putin could be done. Yeah. What did you mean by that? And what's the circumstances that could lead to Putin's very entrenched position at the head of this government? What would it take for that to change.
2: Yeah. Well, I would just say I th- I'm always wary. I think sometimes in the West, we wear rose tinted glasses. And anytime I'm not in Ukraine or Russia, I read articles. I'm like, wow, Putin's really on the ropes, man. It's really, it's, ha-. and then you go to Russia or Ukraine, you're like, oh, okay, well, mm, sort of. Because it's always more complicated, it's always more nuanced, and it's always more layered. The reality is, he is facing the greatest challenge to his power in the more than 20 years since he has been in control. He has been weakened by this war, by the failures of this war, by the failures of the Russian military. However, we have all seen how dictators and despots can cling to power for extremely long periods of time, even when their popularity is on the wane, even when they face threats from within their own inner circle. The only other thing I would just be cautious about, you know, you get carried away in the moment of like, wow, maybe Putin will really go. Well, the next question is who comes in Putin's place? Because if you think they're going to unlock the penal code and let Alexei Navalny, the Russian opposition leader, out and he's going to take over and it's going to be free and fair elections in Russia from now on, you're sorely mistaken. So, you know, it's a confluence of different factors around that, as always with the Kremlin It's very opaque. It's very difficult to know exactly what's going on. But there's no question that he is weaker than he's been in a while. And if he doesn't bring home the bacon in some sense in Ukraine, even if it's with a little bit of sophistry and some nice words and trying to make something look like some kind of a victory, he will be, you know, facing some serious, serious challenges.
1: A personal question, if you don't mind. Some of those stories you just shared are harrowing. And in your 20 plus career,
2: reporting
1: from the front lines of, you know, wars all around the world. How do you maintain positivity about the world when you're constantly this close to so much suffering, so much misery, so many difficult things that are happening?
2: So I think the sort of little-known secret, and this is partly why I actually wrote a book, honestly, the little-known secret about spending time in conflict zones is that you see the worst of humanity, but you also see the best of humanity. The incredible courage you see, the kindness you see, the sacrifice you see, small gestures, things are really distilled to their essence and it's kind of very elemental and profound and and things matter and colors are vibrant and it feels real. And all of that can be very compelling and very difficult to let go of. And then you come back to your real life and you're like, oh my God, there's 50 kinds of toothpaste to choose from. And it's sort of overwhelming in a very different way. But yeah, I would say don't underestimate like the incredible resilience and beauty of the human spirit under incredible hardship and adversity. And that for me is so life affirming and so affirming of this kind of thread of human connection that really binds and connects us all.
1: Well, Clarissa, I am extremely grateful to have you here with us at Voices. I know you're an extremely busy person, but thank you so much for coming.
2: Thank you, thank you guys. Visit
0: bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do bank of America in a copyright 2024
2: planning for your next trip, elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus